You're tuned in to More Living with Jim Brogan, broadcast live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator, and he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for over 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, because more living with Jim Brogan starts now. Welcome, this is More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your of your life your way. As you're listening to News Talk 98.7 WOKI, you know I'm reminded of that phrase, home is where the heart is. Your home holds memories, a sense of safety and comfort, and it's a place you can truly call yours. Your home is also a place of accomplishment. Owning a home is a great achievement and can be a source of financial security for you. But in some cases, mishandling your home, like any asset, can both cause personal and financial trouble. And for that reason, it's important to recognize your home as both a place of personal and financial value. When your home is a place of security in your life and on your balance sheets, purchasing and owning a home can be comforting both on your wallet and in your life, especially in retirement. Now, of course, money can't buy happiness, but it can surely support it if that money is spent and invested wisely according to your needs and your goals. So on today's show, we're going to be focusing on the factors that make a house a home for your financial plan. So we'll do a checkup on the housing market. We'll have some tips for empty nesters will have mistakes to avoid when downsizing. And then finally, at the end of the show, I am going to talk about uh, are we in a recession? So let's just kind of dive in here. You know, no matter if you're looking to sell, buy, rent, renovate, or keep your home as it is, when it comes to, to your home and how it plays into your financial plan, it's important to consider your options in the context of the overall housing market. Recently, the housing market has been trailing the stock market somewhat in terms of volatility and downturn, which could affect your decisions in the future. So, you know, the run-up in the stock market, the housing kind of lagged that a little bit, and housing has softened somewhat, but hasn't had a downturn like the stock market this year. So let's look at the state of housing. You know, in bull market years, which we really had a raging bull market really going all the way back to 2009, but certainly the five years ending in 2021, you know, the Federal Reserve may have overshot the market and kept interest rates low for too long. And that, of course, spurs housing prices. As a result, the market must now wean itself off of those low interest rates. So we got used to consistent explosive asset growth and easy economic environments. And we have to get used to down years now. And guess what? That's normal. It's not always a sign of catastrophe. 
uh, markets go through cycles and that in the long haul typically makes the economy stronger. But it does have a unique effect on the mortgage and the housing sector. You know, it created a large demand, the low interest rate environment created a large demand for home purchases as consumers competed with near zero interest rates to purchase out of what was a limited housing supply. And this resulted in tremendous house price appreciation. Just in the last two years, 34% nationally increase in housing prices. And it boxed out many first-time home buyers who found themselves unable to compete against buyers willing and able to place a non-contingent offer above full price. But the housing market probably won't be in flux forever. You know, the Fed may now be overreacting in their quantitative tightening. So... We were doing quantitative easing, the Fed was, so there were two things going on there. Quantitative easing, they were printing money and injecting it into the economy, and then to, to bolster the effect of that, they were keeping interest rates artificially low, and that created an, enorming house, an enormous housing boom. Well, now they're tightening. They're doing two things. They've been increasing interest rates, and then they've also been pulling cash out of the market to a tune of $95 billion a month. And with all of the focus on increasing interest rates, the impact of pulling $95 billion a month out of circulation also has potentially down the line a pretty significant impact. And this could mean that at some point we go into recession, which could maybe pull mortgage rates back down again. You know, it's interesting because mortgage rates have come down a little bit from their highs when they got up in the low sevens. And some economic forecasts are saying rates could be back in the mid fives by the end of next year. You know, I'm not so sure. When they got up over seven, some economists saw them maybe going to 9%. Uh, you know, I think two years from now, mortgage rates are likely to be lower than they are now. As far as next year goes, will it happen that quickly? I'm not so sure. But you know what? Demand for home buying is still very high and people are priced out. And so, you know, it would be a bigger problem if demand for home ownership it was slowing, but in a macroeconomic sense, it's not. So I think one of the reasons housing prices nationally haven't fallen more is because the supply is so low. There's still tremendous demand for home ownership. So we look at this backdrop, and several things come up when I talk to people, especially as they approach retirement, about this issue with housing and their mortgages and their home values and what they should be doing. And so I'm going to kind of dive into three things here. The first is mortgage debt. The second is going to be this, innate, this idea of retiring on the house. That used to be a big issue with people that lived in ur large urban areas and then moved to smaller, more rural areas 
I think it's now pertinent conversation now, even in East Tennessee, the idea of retiring on the house. You're, you're, where you sell your home, harvest the equity, and then buy a less expensive home in a by either downsizing or moving into a less expensive market. That's what we're seeing a lot of uh, here in East Tennessee with people that are moving here from other areas. They're retiring on their on their house. They're using that home equity to help their retirement. But with the recent surge in home prices, we also have greater tax implications. Uh, even with selling our primary residence, because home values have exploded so much. So when we come back from our first break, we're going to dive into these three things in terms of dealing with what's happening with housing prices. How do you manage mortgages? What's the right answer? This idea or notion of retiring on the house. Uh, but then, is that everything it's cracked up to be? And then also dealing with the tax implications of selling a primary residence with the explosion in real estate values. So stay with us. We'll be back. This is More Living with Jim Brogan, only on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. You better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming. He's making a list and checking it twice. Gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm Jim Brogan. We're with you every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. and again from 3 to 4 p.m. You can also catch all of our podcasts online at broganfinancial.com. Click on radio. We're talking about the implications of the surge in real estate values and what that means maybe for your retirement. And I'm going to bring up in this segment three major areas that I get asked a lot of questions about. And the first is, Jim, how should I manage paying off my mortgage? Or should I even worry about paying off my mortgage? And I think it's overly simplified in order, you know, when we say things like, oh, you want to be completely debt free. Um, The mortgage, that is the one thing where you're borrowing money against an appreciating asset. You know, you expect your home value to increase. Uh, when typically the other debts that we buy, that we have, that we want to avoid are things that will lose money. Uh, our cars, purchases, when we live beyond our means. That's the type of debt we really want to avoid. Mortgages are debt on an appreciating asset. So how should you manage that? Um, I, I will say the number one thing I can say about that is that there is a tremendous value in having your mortgage paid for when you retire. And the reason for that is because of cash flow. You know, when you retire, you're going to be more on a fixed income, a certain amount of money per month, and you've got to make things work within a budget, maybe more so than in your later working years where you're at your maximum earnings. And not having that mortgage payment 
has a tremendous impact. You know, as you get, you also have to re remember how amortization schedules work. You know, if you have a 20 or 30 year mortgage or a 15 year mortgage, you know, in the very early stages, most of your payment is going to interest because you owe on a much larger balance. But when you get down in those last four or five years, you're, you're getting big payments towards principal. And when you look at the proportion of your income that goes to the mortgage payment, that's what you want to think about. How much of your income is having to go towards the mortgage payment? It's usually a pretty high percentage. And so when you eliminate that need, even, even though you're paying mainly towards principal, it has a tremendous impact on your cash flow needs in retirement. Because, you know, if whatever you're getting in Social Security and other income, you might be getting rental income, you might be getting, uh, maybe you're getting a pension, but you've got this baseline of, of income, but then you need to, to supplement that with withdrawals from your savings. So you have an income gap. Here's what Social Security and other income sources cover. Let's say you need, let's say you're getting $4,000 a month, but you've got to then take another seven, another $3,000 a month out of your savings to get to your budget of $7,000. That's your income gap. Well, if you eliminate a $1,500 mortgage payment, you've cut your gap in half. Instead of $3,000 a month of an income gap, now it's $1,500. And that has a, that means you need half the money saved in order to support that income. So paying the mortgage off by the time you retire, uh, I'm a big fan of that. I, I see with my own clients, it just makes things easier. Uh, it's not a requirement. You know, if you, what you don't want to be doing, you don't want to be taking money out of an IRA or a 401k or other retirement account typically to pay off a mortgage because there's a huge tax bill associated with doing that. Because, you know, if you take out fifty or 100000 out of your IRA, you have to pay income taxes on it. So you don't, you don't have a net of that to pay off towards the house. So you've got to look at the tax implications of paying off your house. What types of investments do you have to liquidate? Uh, so, and, and I'm also not a huge, you know, if you've got a mortgage rate at 25 or 3%, you know, I don't think paying it off before you retire is a huge issue. But having it paid the day you retire is huge. Now then second, this notion of retiring on the house. Now this, was, has, this has always been a very popular retirement strategy for people that live in much, much more expensive markets like California, New York, Chicago, places like that. You know, home values there are much higher. They have equity. They sell that house. They move to a lower cost of living area. Now, they're still going to need a house. Uh, they either have to pay for the house in cash or borrow, which, again, we don't like mortgages as much in retirement, or they have to rent something. I mean, you're going to have housing costs in retirement regardless of where you live, even if it's just to pay rents. Most people want to own, but the idea of retiring on the house, and this is, again, we're seeing this a lot in East Tennessee, people moving here from other markets. Somebody lived in L.A., they sold their house for $2 million. You know, they had a million five in equity because of the home appreciation in L.A., 
and they buy a house here for 600,000, 700,000 and they they now have, you know, they had a million five in equity. They pay cash for a house here at 600,000 and they've put $900,000 of equity. Now they can use that equity, that 900,000 to produce income in retirement. One thing that's critical is you have to understand that your where you live will never be a source typically will not be a source of income for you in retirement. Your house will always be a cash drain as opposed to something that produces income. So it is not an income producing asset. The, the, one, re, the one exception would be if you do late in life a reverse mortgage. Uh, we're not going to cover that on this show. Other than a reverse mortgage, your home will always drain cash, not produce cash. So when you sell a more expensive property, and buy a less expensive one, and then you take that excess cash and get it to work for you, it is now an income-producing asset. You know, I'm working with a gentleman right now that's in Phoenix, and he works in Phoenix, and he's looking to retire, and he has quite a bit of home equity, and he has over a million dollars of home equity. And when we look at his retirement plan, he's going to need that home equity if he wants to retire in the next couple of years. So this idea of retiring on the house is very powerful. You know, he can downsize. Now, to downsize, is he going to need to move to another market? Probably so. Maybe not. But he probably will move to another market, and he can retire on the house. Because now, some of that home equity can be used to produce income. And that is a very good strategy. Now, there's... We've got clients that can do that and, and that are doing that in this market because with the escalation in home values, you may could sell your house here, downsize, and put some, have some equity that you don't need for the new house because you downsize, and now that extra money can be used to produce income. And that's what it's all about in retirement is being able to produce income. So those are some good ideas. Uh, there are uh, a couple of hidden landmines when you downsize on the house and, and, and you retire on the house. One is, how do you manage that transition? You know, you have to sell your house and then you're going to have to buy a new house. And managing that transition is difficult. I will tell you, I'm a big fan of bridge loans. You know, one of the problems is if you want to pay for the new house and get it secured before you sell your house, well, you've, how are you going to finance that? You've either got to pay for the new house with your investments or you've got to borrow the money with the bridge loan. So let's say you completely own your house. You've got a, let's say you've got a house that's been valued at $600,000 and you want to downsize into a $400,000 house and you, you, you've paid for your house, so you, you fully own your $600,000 house. Well, you could do a bridge loan where you're borrowing 400000 against the value of your own house to get you through the transition, and then when you sell your house, you can then pay it off. So you can go ahead and secure the new house before you sell yours. Now, obviously then, the issue is, how quickly can you sell yours, and what are those finance costs? And that's where, before you do all those things, you should be talking to an experienced realtor 
who's really good at appraising, at, at estimating values of homes in the area where you're going to be buying, in the area where you're selling. And you really want to get good advice from a realtor before you start that whole process. But the reason I'm a fan of bridge loans is if you feel like you can sell your home pretty quickly once you've secured your new home, is number one, you don't have to sell your current investments. And let's be honest, the stock market, the bond market are both down double digits this year. So you really don't want to be liquidating stock and bond investment that's down double digits. Uh, while they're down, you want to have time to ride some of this stuff out, and that's the key to successful risk-based investing is being able to have time on your side. If you have to sell in order to put down on the new home, uh, that could be a problem. Uh, the second thing is you wouldn't want to have to deal with significant tax ramifications. You know, if all of your money is tied up in retirement accounts, that means you'd have to pay income tax on it to be able to put down on the new home. And that's not a good idea either. Now, word of caution, sometimes I have people ask, Jim, what if I took money out of my IRA? I've got 60 days to do a rollover and get it back in there and not be taxed on it. So you, you take money out of your IRA, you use it to pay down on the new house, and then you plan to sell your existing house and, and, and refund the IRA within 60 days. That's extremely dangerous. Because what if the house doesn't sell? There are all kinds of roadblocks. You can only do one 60-day rollover every 12 months. It's not something I would typically recommend. So bridge loans can be very convenient things. Now, they are going to have higher finance charges with higher interest rates right now. Uh, but, you know, if you work that into your budget and you've got a good idea for home, your ability to sell your home efficiently and quickly with a good realtor, you can manage all that. Now, then the third issue is with, with these escalated home prices is dealing with taxes on the sale of your primary residence. Now, there's some, the IRS gives us some break here. If you have lived in your house for two out of five years, out of the last five years, as your primary residence, you then get a primary residence exemption on capital gains when you sell your house. For a single filer, the first $250,000 of capital gain, you don't have to pay taxes. For a joint filer, you don't have to pay taxes on the first $500,000 in gain. The challenge is with today's real estate prices, we have many clients that are selling their primary homes and they're making more than those exemptions. And there's, no, there's really not a good way around that capital gain tax. You know, you cannot do a 1031 exchange for new property on your primary residence. So you'd have to go through a lot of rigmarole to turn that into a investment property and then down the line sell it. Uh, as a rule, you're just going to have to deal with that tax burden. But again, it's only on anything over $500,000 gain uh, on if you're a joint filer, 250 if you're a single filer. This is where planning for these things ahead of time is so critically important. Uh, that's where the financial plan comes in. And, you know, ultimately keep in mind, with pretty much without exception, every client I've had 
that has sold their primary home or are selling their primary home and dealing with a long-term capital gain that is more than that exemption of either $250,000 or $500,000, just remember you're exposed to that because you've made a tremendous amount of money on your residence. And ultimately, I'd rather make 600000 on selling my primary residence than making 400000 And yeah, that means you've got a long-term capital gain on a little bit of the money. But you're still making more money. Now, yeah, you've got to pay more for the new house. So it can provide a challenge, and I understand that. Uh, but again, not the worst thing in the world to be making good money. And then it, that's where the financial plan comes in. So dealing with our primary residents in these, in these times of real estate values going up so much is so critically important how we manage all that. Now, when we come back in our next segment, we're going to talk about protecting your finances as an empty nester. So stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. Uh, this is News Talk 98.7 WOKI, and we're talking about some of the implications of owning a home and using that as an opportunity to increase your financial stability. In this segment, I want to talk about protecting your finances as an empty nester. You know, when your kids finally leave the house and are financially independent, it can certainly be an emotional time. I'm personally getting there. I'm going to be there in a year and a half. My youngest daughter will be graduating high school and then going to college. You know, you saw your kids and family grow up and witness their learning moments and achievements, many of which may have happened in your very own house. And for many of you, your house was purchased with them in mind. But now that your family may have left the nest, and thus your financial situation, your life takes on a whole new meaning. Well, your financial situation takes on a whole new meaning. But while you may assume retirement savings gets easier as an empty nester, studies show that many fall behind financially during this initial empty nest period. This was fascinating as I was researching this for today's show. Empty nesters are falling behind in retirement planning. A recent study from the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College shows that many parents may not be keeping up with their retirement savings goal after their children leave home, despite having less of a financial burden. And the study suggests a number of reasons of why empty nester parents neglect retirement savings. There are a few possible explanation, explanations. One, empty nester parents could be paying down debts after the children leave home. That's certainly a big one. 
right? You want to you want to prioritize paying down debt. I think in a financial plan, there's an important balance between paying down debt and saving and investing money for retirement. Parents also could continue to provide financial support for children after they've left the home. Now, certainly, like in my case, my youngest daughter will be going to college, and we're going to we're, we'll be paying for her expenses and paying for her education while she's in college. Now, my oldest child is graduating from college this April. Uh, but the point of that is, even after kids get out of college, you may see some financial burden in trying to help them uh, get on their feet. And then empty nesters many times tend to adjust their earnings and work hours after children leave the home. So a consistent finding in this study was that empty nester parents tend to work less and therefore earn less. So even if consumption is lower, if you're earning more money, you can't increase your or maintain your savings. So this is where I think, you know, your last 10 years of your working years are typically, those are our peak earning years. And this data from this study is very interesting and was eye-opening to me. Uh, I think it's important that we keep our eye on the ball, so to speak, when we plan for retirement. You know, it's interesting when I hear younger folks talk to me about college educational planning for their kids. A lot of times, or if people are getting, like their kids are in high school getting ready to go to college and you're trying to hear, figure out how to pay for that, the issue many times is not a college funding need, it is a retirement funding need. We've not saved enough for retirement. And I think that you have to always maintain that priority and keep your eye on the ball of being financially independent in the long haul. So you have to balance funding for retirement with funding our kids, paying for college, dealing with their financial realities when they're out of college or if they don't go to college. And how much do you help? How much do you not help? These are all difficult things. As I say, I'm right there because I've got a one, got one daughter about to graduate college. She's looking for jobs right now, doesn't have one lined up. And then we've got you know, a, a high school child that'll be going to college here in a year and a half. So, but we cannot sacrifice our long-term retirement planning in order to pay for college. And then when, if, 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 if you do say, if you do, excuse me, if you do borrow money to pay for college, or you've borrowed money to help raise your kids, you have to balance your ability to pay off your debt with your ability to invest for retirement. Now, in the, in the, one, in the last segment, I talked about the, the importance of paying off your mortgage by the time that you retire. It does have a huge impact on cash flow. But this is where the income plan, planning for retirement income becomes so critically important and managing debt before you retire, managing savings and investments before you retire, all of these things are just critically important. Uh, with one of the benefits of the huge inflation rates that we're seeing is all the cost of living increases in the Internal Revenue Code in terms of tax brackets, deductions, amounts we can save in our retirement accounts, they're all going up, 
a pretty good amount next year. You know, if you're 50 or older, you know, you can put up to $30,000 next year in your retirement account at work, 401k, 403b, up to $30,000 of your income, as long as you're earning that much, can go into a 401k plan or 403b or other retirement account. And you can either put that in, depending on your employer plan, you know, you could typically put that in pre-tax and get a tax deduction. But you could also, you know, if your plan has a Roth option, you could consider putting that in to the Roth, but then you don't get the tax benefit going in. So in our last 10 years before retirement, we typically are making more money. We typically have the ability to save more. The IRS provides a catch-up provision once we're in the year of our 50th birthday, both for IRAs and for retirement accounts at work. Then we also have to manage debt and paying things down. You know, the decision to cut back on work hours has to be very carefully considered. That's what this study is showing at Boston College. Many people cut back on their hours and therefore derail some of their financial planning. So just be very careful. This is where retirement income projections become very important for down the line. So I would urge you to put a financial plan together to be able to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Now, on the subject of cutting back on work hours, I do want to be clear on something. What we're talking about here is this data that shows that many empty nesters cut back on work hours because they feel like their financial obligations are, are not as high, but they, they therefore cannot save as much. That is one thing. Another thing, though, that is extremely effective in retirement planning is when you are pretty much at retirement age, whatever that is for you, 63, 65, 66, maybe 70, whatever that is for you, and the idea of working part-time in the first two or three years of retirement. Uh, working part-time in the early years of retirement has a tremendously positive impact on your retirement plan because that part-time income where maybe you can control your schedule. You know, we have a lot of clients at Brogan Financial that do consulting work. They retire, they do consulting where they work maybe 50 to 60% of the hours. And yeah, there's other costs with being self-employed, but ultimate, but there's also opportunities with retirement account contributions and deductions and things like that. But the bottom line is, that means you don't have to withdraw as much from your savings to fund your income because you have a transition where you're working part-time in retirement. That is extremely powerful in a financial plan. So I just don't want to confuse that idea, which is very powerful, with this idea that once you're an empty nester, maybe you're in your early 50s or late 40s or mid-50s, in my case, when I'll be an empty nester, that you don't cut back on hours to the detriment of saving for retirement. When we come back from our last break, I'm going to dive into the topic that we see discussed in the news a lot, and I get asked a lot in my office, are we in a recession yet? So stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. It's the most wonderful time of the year. 
With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm your host, Jim Brogan. You can catch all of our shows podcast on our website. Go to brokenfinancial.com and click on radio. Uh, We're on every Saturday, 9 to 10 a.m. and again from 3 to 4 p.m. Also, check up our upcoming classes. We'll start at the University of Tennessee in early February with Financial Survival for Retirement. And then we've got uh, some one-night classes throughout the spring. If you go to broganfinancial.com and click on classes, you can, cl- you can find out all the classes that are scheduled in the spring from February through May. And you can also go ahead and register. Both the University of Tennessee and Pellissippi State has their classes up uh, on their websites and ready to accept registration. So we'd love to see you there. Uh, my goal in those classes to get, is to inform you so you can make prudent decisions that can impact the quality of your life. Are we in a recession yet? You know, for many of you, recession feels like it has already hit. Uh, People working in some industries, especially the tech industry, are experiencing mass layoffs and hiring freezes, while those who travel long and often for work have seen rises in gas prices rip through their monthly budgets. If you're approaching retirement, you may have gotten queasy if your portfolio values dropped hard and fast over the last year. But if we take a step back and look at how recession is defined, how it's occurred in the past, we may find the question, are we in recession, is not as cut and dry as you may think. You know, though the economy has sputtered in 2022, it has been resilient. The conventional benchmark that you hear sometimes, and this was a big controversy this summer, is, you know, if we have two consecutive quarters of a slowing economy, that defines a recession. And in the first and second quarter, uh, we did have declining GDP. And that is, if you look up the dictionary definition of a recession, that's what you'll find typically. Um, however, in the U.S., the, uh, the, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which was an agency, in, it is an agency embedded in the U.S. Department of Commerce, uh, they kind of define whether or not we're in recession. And in the third quarter, economic growth was up 2.6%. Well, see, one of the reasons that we don't just define recession as two negative periods of GDP growth is because of some, you know, it's hard to take a $30 trillion economy and dial it, or let's say $25 trillion, 20, whatever, it's hard, over a $20 trillion economy, it's hard to take that number and bake what's going on in that entire economy based on one number like GDP growth. And here's the reality. Some of the numbers that affect our GDP growth are trade. You know, when we have our trade deficit increase, meaning we have less in exports, we're exporting less in relation to what we're importing, that actually has a negative impact on GDP. 
inventories, how much are companies adding to inventories or selling out of existing inventories, has a big impact on our GDP, as does government spending. So our economy grew at a rate of over 2.5% in the third quarter, and a lot of that reflects strong exports, which was a weakness in previous reports. That doesn't mean our economy is necessarily growing again. So if we look at GDP excluding inventories, trade, and government spending, we have lost some steam since the start of this year, coming in at just 0.08% in the third quarter. So we are seeing some signs of slowing GDP growth. Are we in a recession right now? The answer is we really don't fully know. We may be in a mild recession. Uh, I do not personally think we're in the start of a recession. However, there are some really, really smart economists out there that do think we are in the start of a mild recession. You know, we don't, we don't know we're in it when we're in it. We find out, you know, down the line when the recession started. I do think recession is coming. We're either in it now or we will be in it in the future. Will it happen next year or will it be in early 2024? I'm not sure. Will it be a deep recession? Will it be a mild or a moderate recession? Obviously, we don't know that. I tend to subscribe to the more moderate viewpoint. Um, I don't think it's going to be deep. The question is, how long will it last? And this is an important question because of the inflationary concerns that we're seeing right now. You know, the Fed, their, their central effort right now is to control inflation. Uh, but by doing that, by continually raising interest rates and cutting back on money in the economy by decreasing the money supply, they're trying to slow economic growth. They're trying to slow demand because demand is so much greater than supply right now. And that's so they're going to slow down the economy. The question is, how far do they go and, and how, how much do they slow it down? Does that trigger a recession? We are seeing signs of labor inflation slowing down. That's a product, That's a good thing, I think, because until labor inflation comes down, I don't know how we get our arms around inflation. You know, there's been a lot of speculation that up until the last couple of months, you know, the economic numbers have continued to be very strong. People are continuing to spend money, and it's because they're making more. So while things are costing more, people are making enough to cover it. But now labor inflation is starting to slow down. So the Fed, I think, is going to continue to raise rates. They're probably going to do a half-point increase next week. They're probably going to continue to do rate increases. And how much does that slow down the economy? And do we reach a point where we see recession? I think we will. However, don't try to time the stock market. Our market bottom in relation to recession typically happens seven to eight months prior to recession because... The market is a forward indicator. It's looking at where we're likely to be in five or six or seven months. Not where we are now, where we're likely to be in six months. So well, oftentimes by the time we're in a recession, the market's already priced that and is now pricing us coming out of recession. But it does mean more economic instability and more volatility and turmoil. And this is where having a good measured financial plan that measures risk of investments and balances risk and reward and also structures 
stable income in the early years of retirement is more critical than it's ever been. Today we've discussed the financial implications of the real estate market, owning your home, negative implications of empty nest, and then we've also discussed recession. Because a greater financial plan provides for greater wealth so you can live the best years of your life your way. Thank you to Riley for running the board today and engineering the show. Thank you to Jill for helping produce the show. Check us out online, broganfinancial.com. We've got lots of resources. You can click on resources and download some complimentary guides. We've also got our blogs. And we've got all of our radio shows and our dollars and cents segments podcast on our website. Go to broganfinancial.com and click on radio. Have a very blessed weekend as we celebrate and get deeper into the Christmas season. You're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan only on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. The views expressed by Jim Brogan and his guests are not that of Cumulus Media. Any discussion of financial, legal, and tax planning strategies is not intended to be individualized advice and is general in nature. Always consult with your advisor for advice specific to your needs. This program's content does not represent a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment by Jim Brogan or Brogan Financial Incorporated.